Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting live and on demand from Buffalo, New York. There's snow on the ground. Still, it's frozen. It's 18 degrees Fahrenheit. Today is Sunday, January 30th, 2022. And I am joined by our everyman, our correspondent from my immediate south in South Buffalo, Chris Gullo. Hello. Hello. It's uh, great to be here. Unfortunately, I'm not getting ready to go to an AFC championship game. Are those Chiefs colors you're wearing? No, no. These are 49ers colors. They, they are my number two teams. Okay, so. there's gold there. The, the bow tie is gold. Yes. Those yeah, listening to audio. Yes. Red shirt, gold bow tie. Yep. Yes. Um, you had a, a an MMA show last night. Where was that? Uh, Buffalo Sorry. Riverworks for K4 Riverworks. Fighting. Is that, um, that's MMA. Yeah. It Professional was MMA. MMA. And Muay Thai. Professional? A- amateur. 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 Was but, the New York State like, Athletic Commission there? What's up? Was the New York no State Athletic commission. commission? No commission. No, no they were. No. Were there were there any underage fighters there? Yeah. But oh wow. <laughs> what what if what if you do, what if we do an amateur wrestling show? Right. I mean, there is some pro wrestling shows that don't pay, so wouldn't they be amateur anyways? <laughs> um, well, I, th- I think I think the, the problem is that the, even those wrestling shows that don't pay are hand-to-hand combat exhibitions, primarily for the purpose of entertainment. Although, what's amateur wrestling? Is not primarily for the purpose of entertainment. I don't know. Anyway, I know you're making slight reference to the article that uh, David Bixen's fan put out about uh, the New York State of Black Commission. I actually helped him out, get him Did that you? info from Excite for 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 that. Like. Uh, oh. I was talking to Johnny Moose, he gave me stuff, and I gave it over to Vic, so. Well, good. Um, yeah, we, we won't be tackling that issue here today. But no, um, we don't need to. We, yeah. uh, I know your thoughts on it, you know mine. So. Yes, An- another time, maybe. Um, but the, uh, so, let's get right right into the um, the Bills game. Let's take, let's walk us uh, through, walk our listeners through the Bills game that happened last week. Uh, let's start with the first quarter. Uh, I mean... <laughs> I'm not going to do it. All I could say this is that it was probably the best playoff game I ever watched. When they scored that touchdown with 13 seconds left, I thought it was a done deal. I celebrated. I was cheering. My rabbit was thumping because of the loud noises. People were blowing out fireworks in my neighborhood. Really? And then shortly after, about 10 minutes after, I sat in silence. Mm-hmm. But then... uh Turn on the GCW pay per view and Jeff Sheridan Effie was on, and that's what I wanted to watch. So that's right. Great game by Josh Allen, the quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, lost the coin toss, though. Lost the coin toss. The Bills eliminated from NFL playoffs contention. Um. So, but no, we're not really going to review the uh, the Bills game, but we are going to go match by match through the uh, the Royal Rumble card. So, uh, did you did you love the Royal Rumble or did you really love it? <laughs> Well, uh, I only watched the men's Rumble match. You don't watch yeah, anything else? No, I was going to watch the women's Rumble match. Why do you Rumble hate WWE so much? You only watched that one? You didn't You didn't enjoy that whole card of entertainment, the whole program? I finished my MMA show as soon as the – well, actually, the, the mixed tag was still going. So and you're competing I, with, with the Royal Rumble? I mean, yes, we were competing with the Rumble, yes. So – then as I was like helping tear down production, cause I had friends doing production and, you know, uh, getting out of the suit and everything. I put the rumble men's rumble on, uh, my plan today is to watch women's rumble, which I heard was significantly better from Twitter. Uh, 
but you know, yeah, it wasn't must see television for me other than the rumble matches. Oh, there were, there were entrances. It was a premium live event. I have to say that it was a premium live event. There were entrances. There were matches that had endings. Um, there were so many moves that were just attempted. And, um, there's a burning WrestleMania sign, which uh, is, a, is an omen only of good things, of course. How how on fire and exciting that WrestleMania will be. Um, there were uh, there was heat. There was some heat. You know, only only the desired kind of heat, of course, uh, that will only make people watch more. I'm sure. And um, this this match or this show, I'm sorry, this premium live event. Uh, it's, it's early, I suppose, but it, but does have a number of votes, 173 on cage match this morning, cagematch.net currently rating at about a three out of 10, uh, which would make it the, the lowest rating. If that, if, if that's the, the, the final rating, I guess they're never really fine. Like you can always add your rating in here, but, uh, this would be the lowest at the moment since W super showdown, uh, in February, 2020, the, the last, um, Saudi Arabia event before the pandemic. All right, well, uh, we uh, we will touch a little bit on Royal Rumble tickets, but we have a big episode today, Brandon. How many slides? How many slides are in, our, are, are in our slides presentation right now? Uh, if we go down, there is I'm I'm, I'm still scrolling. Seventy seven. Um, <laughs> Seventy seven uh, slides. Yes, we have a huge episode. Uh, we're actually going to discuss cutting the cord. Yes, yeah, just, just just briefly. I wanted to troll you. Um, yes. <laughs> so as you, as you know uh the tv bundle the cable bundle is on the verge of collapse every day we i don't know if it gets closer but we talk about it getting closer um and as, as i've as i've yelled uh, a couple times now uh p50 plus will never cut the cord they will never give up that big rubbery remote in, in exchange for you're you're a roku man i i, I imagine yes. you're a roku man i'm an apple man a little bit more civilized but um the p50 plus I, I finally charted the data. We talked about something similar. I did talk about this on, on Thursday, but I figure it's, it's, uh, I'm going to mention it again. Um, so I went through all the showbiz data, the OCR technology, the team here at WrestleMania Studios. We have scraped about 95% of the data from 2016 to, to the end of 2021. And so now we have all the showbiz data across all of those demos, including P50 plus and, uh, and, and, and 18 to 34 and 18 to 49 and 25 to 54 and P50 plus across those one, two, three, four, five, six, six years viewership, at least among the top 50 cable originals, which is what we've got. That's everything that we've got in, in, in cable, I couldn't include broadcast in that, but we don't get P50 plus in broadcast. But this is all the data from Showbiz Daily that's relevant to this question. And P50 plus is not down. P50 plus, that viewership for the olds, as some people call it, is not down over the last six years. It's actually up by a few percent. Most of these age groups, especially the older ones, have this big 2020 jump from reasons we can imagine. But even in 2022, compared to 2016, P50 plus is up 6%. So basically, P50 Plus not not moving, not moving really at all. And then I had this information uh, shared with me for uh, Nielsen has its The Gauge donut chart that it puts out every month, which is very, very interesting, uh, showing what the TV watch time is. And they only publish P2 Plus, but someone shared with me different age breakdowns, age breakdowns that we are familiar with from looking at TV ratings. Um, 
showing that, you know, if, if I, if I add up cable and broadcast, you know, 79% of the P50 plus TV time is cable and broadcast is, is traditional TV. Um, even, even children, the age group of two to 17, 31% of their TV time is spent watching, um, traditional TV, which I think we need to, to, uh, organize some sort of program to let the children know that, you know, I have many friends who have children who tell me that they, their kids never watch TV. So we need to tell the children that they don't watch TV anymore, that they only use streaming. Um, but even almost a third of children, their TV time, the traditional tube. But anyway. Um, I, I do just want to touch on this a little bit here, just from personal experience. Uh, I was just having this conversation the other day with my wife. Um, and I apologize if you can hear my my dots and barking. There must be an Amazon delivery. But uh, um, uh, but I was having this conversation with my wife the other day about her parents. Now they're both fifty plus, and they cable subscribers. Cable. I imagine <laughs> they still have cable. Yes, because they like to have the landline, and you get those in the bundles. Companies like Spectrum. And Comcast, they sell the bundles with the landline. And I feel like this P50 plus generation that still thinks they have a landline, that, that's part of the reason why they're getting cable. Yeah, I, I think my mom doesn't have a landline anymore. But I, when I went to her house for Christmas Eve, I was like, you still have cable, right? Like you, you never, She never canceled. She talked about canceling cable, but has never canceled cable. Um, I think, so I was telling someone earlier, I think that P, the, the current, today's P50 plus, obviously, this people will get older every year. I'm pretty sure. Uh, and you know, people who are 49 today will be 50 next year. But I think this, this, this group of people who are today over the age of 50 overwhelmingly will never cut the cord. Um, unless those businesses just go out of business and force everybody to, to change, um, and to convert to, you know, through, through the internet tube for some reason, um, which is possible. Uh, but I, I don't, I think you can incrementally raise their uh, subscription fees, which is I, I I hear has is is happening and has already happened and continues to happen. Oh yeah, but I think you know and everybody hates their cable company, so there's like there's not really a lot of good goodwill left to destroy. Sounds like another company I know, but anyway, um, the, so I think they're going to endure a lot of uh, you know incremental price raises for a while, and the, but they'll continue to pay it just for the the ability to keep the kind of service that they're used to having rather than navigate and deal with the, you know, the tech savvy that's needed to deal with all these streaming platforms and having to have the, the dongle or the right smart TV. Not that maybe that'll probably come easier over time, but I think, you know, it's uh it's the same reason why advertisers don't value people over the age of 50 the same way that they value people between the ages of 18 to 49 or 25 to 54 is because I think they've decided that they've, they've got the product that they're used to and they're not going to change unless they're really, really forced to. And I think it's, there's like kind of like pay-per-view there's, there's a lot of price inelasticity, demand inelasticity there where you can raise the price substantially over what it is now over, over time and they'll stick with it even though they'll say they hate their cable company in the meantime. I think, yeah, I mean, and the biggest issue, I mean, it's not the content. The content that the P50 Plus viewers crave, it's there on streaming. Almost every major broadcast network has a streaming device where they have live streams of all their channels. And, you know, 
there's tons. I mean, if you go on Pluto TV right now, there's a ton of news channels. We've talked before how P50 Plus loves cable news. Yeah. And there, there's a ton of cable news on there. So it's, but it, it's teaching a generation that we, we talked about it. Consumer habits don't change after 50. That's why the 18 to 49 is so huge. It's hard to change their viewing habits. You know, I mean, here's people that don't change their consumer habits. We think they're going to change the way they view things. Why does any of this matter to wrestling? Isn't this a, this is a media podcast, not a wrestling podcast, but why does any of this matter to wrestling? Um, I, well, because cable TV rights deals are, you know, what's bringing in big money for WWE and WWE, as we've seen with the data, P50 plus is a big market for WWE. And where do cable companies make most of their revenue from? It's the ads, right? Ads, the the ads. Most of the revenue. No, not, not ads. It's not, I I know we weren't going to do Jeopardy today, but cable companies make most of, at least Major ones. I don't know about the smaller ones. Maybe they're not getting affiliate fees, but most the the top cable networks, including Turner and NBC Universal, make the majority of their revenue not from ads. They make about a third or a quarter of their money in ad revenue, but they make about two thirds of it in affiliate fees, charging spectrum, right. charging spectrum, yeah. Directv, and so forth, Comcast, charging those carriers cable satellite carriers they charge them the right to carry the usa network tnt tbs espn etc so uh ads are important and ads i mean rating ratings tell you what what programs people are watching um and p18 and 49 is important because that's probably the most valued uh, ad demo but it also tells you something about where viewers are going to be in the future anyway uh, anyways, yeah, we will move on. Uh, and we talked about this story a couple weeks ago, and then it just disappeared, Brandon. Yes. And here we are, uh, reported by the Sports Business Journal. On Thursday, Disney cut its first WWE deal, agreeing to an exclusive pack to carry WWE Network in Indonesia. The deal will make WWE Network available on Disney Plus Hot Star, starting with the Royal Rumble on January 30th. The agreement makes all WWE Live events available to Disney Plus Hot Star subscribers via a standard subscription. All events will be available in the Bahasa Indonesia language, as well as English. While this marks Disney's first actual deal with WWE, the two have already had an established relationship. Uh, WWE earlier cut Latin American deals with Fox that Disney inherited as part of its 19 acquisition of Fox Entertainment assets. Hulu also holds the U.S. re-air rights for WWE shows, Raw and SmackDown, which are up at the end of the year. Um, so, yeah, Brandon, we talked about this. Now it's officially out there. I do want to talk real quick before you get into it. Um, the reporting by some wrestling media. They're making this to be this gigantic deal. Really? Like, oh, Disney and WWE are doing business. Oh, that means they're going to be interested in a sale and this and that. Like, this is, WWE wants to be in every global region. And this is the streaming service in Indonesia. That's why you make business there. Like, I don't think there's a bigger plan of selling to Disney or this is going to lead to a prosperous relationship with Disney. I just think it made sense for both parties for the Indonesian market. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the areas for growth that Nick Khan has identified, uh, as I was looking over the the transcript from the last quarter's earnings call, is international WWE network rights. Um, 
as, as well as the Hulu rights, two things that, you know, another thing that we're going to talk about today. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't understand this area of, uh, of like business and media partner relationships that well. So somebody can correct me here or guide me, but I think, you know, why wouldn't you want to have as many relationships with a diversity of wealthy partners as you can? That is, so let's have, let's, let's make another deal with Disney. Um, and it's, and it sounds like it's a pretty high reach platform in this region as well. So there's good reason to make that partnership because of that besides whatever they might be getting paid for this deal, which is, you know, not disclosed and not reported. Um, but this is coming from John O'Ran of the sports business journal, which, uh, which he has another article that we're going to talk about today with his uh, interview with Nick Khan. Um, I've really been enjoying the the O'Rand and Marshan podcast that they that the, uh, John O'Rand and uh, Andrew Marshan have started in the last several months, uh, where they just talk about sports business. Um, but so, what you were referring to although a moment ago is that this story came up. Well, what we mean by that is there was a press release published about a deal between Disney Hotstar and WWE uh, two weeks ago. I think it was now earlier in this month, January. It, it published even on the corporate website for WWE, quickly disappeared. It made it to a couple, at least one press release wire website. Uh, some others, I think it appeared on them. It was also scrubbed from those as well. But uh, so I didn't know what was going on there. Uh, and I, I emailed uh, the Disney Hotstar PR and they told me that they would get back to me about it. Uh, I emailed WWE Public Relations. They didn't get back to me. Um, so I didn't know what the, what was going on here, why they would clearly, they had a, a press release prepared and they had you know, a quote from Nick Khan in there and, uh, from somebody from Disney hotstar. Any, anyway, uh, so this just reported in, in sports business journal. There's not any other sort of official announcement that, that I had seen. Uh, I, I did ask WWE and they, they said that, uh, the story is true. The story is accurate and that they had put out an announcement, but only in the local language. So they had not put out an English language announcement. So it's a real deal. In other words, I mean, I, I don't doubt the reporting of, of sports business journal here, but uh, it is, it is a deal that is happening. So somewhat along it's those lines. Yes. Yes. Speaking of streaming rights, re-air rights for Raw, SmackDown and NXT, uh, Hulu, of course, the current holder of those rights, that contract ends up at the end of this year. And, well, the big scramble is who will be the next holder of the rights? Will it be Hulu or a competitor? Will it be Hulu? Will it be be Tubi? Do you think it's going to be Tubi? Maybe that's why they had to block MLW, allegedly. allegedly. I feel like you put Tubi on there just for me. Yes. Well, (laughs) yes. Um, just for, this is just for you. Uh, we've got, I, th- I think who are the serious, uh, potential partners here that come to mind for me? Uh, probably not to be because I think it's going to go to a st- subscription streaming platform to be is a fast. Do you remember what fast stands for? Oh, I, I, have I, have I failed as a teacher again? You, you haven't failed. I just <laughs> trying to think off the top of my head, I, but I do remember it being an acronym free. Uh, Free ad supported television. There yep. you go. There you go. Well done. Boom. So it's so a free. Your Pluto's. Yeah. Yeah. It's a free platform. That means there's not that much revenue coming in, at least at this point. I think these, these fast platforms are pretty low revenue at this point, but they're plays. They're, they're hedges for the future when there's maybe there's not as much 
cable penetration around the world or around the country. Um, anyway, I think it's going to go to one of these subscription platforms that have more money to, to pay for it. Uh, and that, or at least more money allocated to, to them in, in the case of Peacock, uh, which I think we're going to talk about as well today and a, a little later. But I think it's, these are the potential partners here. Hulu, Peacock, maybe Amazon Prime Video, maybe ESPN+. Plus. Uh, so why, why these, I think one of the, one of the keys that W probably is considering here, not just how much money they can get from a partner for these rights. And is it clear what we're talking about here? Did we properly introduce this, the re-air rights? I was tweeting yesterday, uh, as I was looking at the, the transcript from Nick Khan's comments on the last earnings call, it's transcribed at least as RIA rights, RIA rights. And then it, 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 you know, we needed a, someone with a, a non-American accent in, in the form of Neil Flanagan uh, to explain to me, maybe he's just saying re-air rights, which is probably what he was saying. Uh, but anyway, one thing that I think is important. So this is, I'm oh, sorry. These are the, the next day rights to Raw, SmackDown. I think you get NXT in here as well. And, and Lord knows you get the main event. So that's, that's, what, they're, that's what they're dealing. Uh, the deal, I believe, is up sometime this year in 2022. So very likely that we'll see an announcement of a new deal made sometime during this year, maybe sooner rather than later, who knows. Um, but I think besides the money that they can attract for these rights, which is probably going to increase substantially, that's what's been hyped to, to me. And that, that makes sense to me. You know, you've got uh, an increasingly competitive streaming market here. Everybody's in the in the streaming game now, which was not so much the case last time they dealt these rights. So besides the money, as I finally get to the point here, besides the money that, that might be involved here, what, what else would be important is the reach. You want to be on a platform that people, uh, that there's a lot of users for, but not just users, but that people actually use. Uh, you can say you have 24 million monthly active accounts, but do people actually use it on a weekly basis or more, more often than that? But anyway, what are the most popular streaming platforms? In the United States, uh, according to Nielsen's The Gauge, which we were referencing a moment ago, uh, we've got the total pie of the TV time among people aged two plus in December. The streaming platforms go in in this order. I guess this is the top one, two, three, four, five. Disney Plus be number five. Amazon Prime Video more than Disney Plus, which is surprising to me, but number two. Hulu at number three still, the player that was early to the game, along with another one. YouTube, so YouTube gets included here as well. You know, YouTube's not a subscription streaming platform. I guess I could see them dealing with YouTube. Um, and YouTube's probably making, I don't know how much money YouTube makes in a, in a given period of time, but probably quite a bit, uh, considering the, the amount of time that's being spent on that platform. Uh, Remember, they had a subscription service that they no longer, it was YouTube Red. I think they still have right. something because we're we're making money here, not just on ad well, they, revenue, but on on their premium they have subscription YouTube TV, too. But that's right. a lot like Hulu. It, it's a, another cable platform. So like the old like right. Um, it's like a sling. Understood. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what, but you can still. I think you can still pay a subscription fee, and then you get access to to YouTube videos without the ads. Oh, okay. I think that is still happening because I see that in our, in our analytics in terms of where we're getting revenue from. Um, 
someone can update us on what, what it is we're trying to talk about. But anyway, the most popular streaming platform could WWE, this is purely speculation on information. Could WWE next day rights go to Netflix? What would the, Chris Gullo, not, not a current investor in WWE stock, has no, no plans to initiate any such positions in the next 72 hours? No, no, what, no, no what, especially in the next 72 hours. What would the WWE stock price do if WWE sold its next day rights to Netflix? Oh, it absolutely increased. Netflix is a, yeah. It would excite the stock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and here's the, it's funny you bring up that Netflix. Um, once again, a personal experience thing, you know, when you're going over your budget and you're looking at all your streaming services, the one thing my wife says is, Oh, well, we can't get rid of Netflix. That's the one thing we can't get rid of. Like, and I just think it's, you know, we talked about habit. I think Netflix has built this streaming habit into people because they were one of the first pioneers. Of streaming and, uh, but here's the thing about next air, air rights. They have done weekly programs on Netflix where it's one episode a week, but those would be like original programming. I've never seen anything like this on Netflix where something that airs on TV would then next day be on Netflix. Usually they'll get it at the end of the season. It's a good point. Um, Great British Bake Off, I think comes onto Netflix about a week after it originally airs in the UK. I think so. Uh, Other things that are relevant to bring up here, Netflix has been sort of talking about maybe getting into sports. Um, Not so much that they would bid for sports, live sports rights. I mean, nothing on Netflix is live, Uh, but, and so they've done some things like they, they've done the formula one, uh, docuseries that everyone loves to talk about uh drive to survive that is coincided with a real increase in interest in formula one racing um but it will maybe it maybe the justification if your netflix is you know we're not sure about whether how involved we want to get in sports yet but maybe maybe making a deal like this with wb would be a good experiment to see how how much engagement and interest there would be how well how good of a fit this is maybe it would be a good experiment uh for Netflix to get involved in and the benefits to WWE besides whatever they might be able to get Netflix to pay them for their next day rights would be by God, we're with Netflix, uh, the most popular streaming platform in the United States. Uh, so tons of reach there. Um, and it, uh, you know, it, it would excite the stock I think as well. And it would plant into people's minds that, you know, we, we've made it, made a deal, a U.S. based deal, for uh for our core content next day writes to it uh with with a major streaming player uh one of the fangs so uh i think it would excite speculation about wb's live tv rights which are the biggest piece of business and the biggest component to what w stock price and market value is and i guess it should be noted that wb and netflix have done business together True. there was that undertaker new day live action thing there was the movie yeah. where the kid gets like the mask that makes him like right. a, a superstar wrestler like so they've had uh i think they had a couple other things too yeah they've it's not as if it's deals. unprecedented that netflix and wb yeah. have ever worked together but in small ways they have and a lot of their documentary a lot, a lot of the documentaries that used to be on dvds uh, have been on netflix for years and years because uh, I, I remember watching several of them through Netflix. So there's that. All, all right. Yeah. And uh, we will uh, move on um, to 
an article from Variety here about Peacock as the streaming service theme continues today. Yes. Uh, Peacock's loss grows to 1.7 billion in 2021 as Comcast Q4 tops expectations. Uh, revenue for the NBCU streaming service hit 778 million in 2021, notched 9 million paying subscribers. The article goes into detail. NBC Universal's Peacock entering its third year of operation sank deeper into investment mode. Red Inc. in 2021 with adjusted losses at the streamer more than doubling year after year. Uh, Comcast, uh, in reporting Q4 earnings Thursday, revealed that Peacock generated $770 million in revenue for the full year 2021 with an adjusted loss of $1.7 billion. That compared with $118 million of revenue and an adjusted EBITDA. Uh, <laughs> adjusted what? Uh, EBITDA. <laughs> EBITDA. Earnings before interest. Tax appreciation and amortization, a loss of six hundred sixty-three million in twenty twenty. At the end of twenty twenty-one, Peacock had nine million paid subscribers. Comcast CEO Brian Roberts told analysts on the call, "The first time the company has disclosed paying customers for the streamer. That base is approaching average revenue per subscriber of ten a month, ten dollars a month, including ad revenue." And that's without much focus on paid subscriber growth. He said, in addition, Peacock has another 7 million monthly highly engaged bundle subscribers via Comcast and Xfinity and other distributors. Those currently receiving Peacock premium at no extra cost. The company spent about 1.5 billion on content for Peacock in 2021 and expects to double this year. To three billion, Kavanaugh said. Uh, Comcast hopes to boost that to five billion annually over the next several years. He added, "Yes. So, if you're a wrestling fan, especially one highly engaged on Twitter, you see this headline and you think to yourself, Peacock's losing money. The deal with WWE must not be working out, right? Peacock's going under, right? No, you got to lose money to make money, and that seems to be their angle here." Yes. So I, we, we have a little bit more to read here too, but I, I guess I, I, I drew some images out here because I want to explain for people who don't already know. Peacock is, is an NBC universal company, obviously, or it's, I don't know if it's a company, but it's a streaming platform. It's probably a company, uh, which is owned by NBC universal, which is owned by Comcast and Comcast is among others. It's a telecom company. It's a cable company. It's an internet service company. It's a phone company. Uh, so go ahead, go ahead and read this last paragraph here. Yeah. So uh, Comcast execs previously told investors that it expected to invest about $2 billion in Peacock during 2020 and 2021. Over those two years, the adjusted net loss for Peacock was $2.36 billion. The company has projected Peacock will achieve the break-in point by 2025 but kavanaugh said that that could be pushed out beyond the original expectation yeah did, did we explain who kavanaugh is is that brett kavanaugh um i'm not sure i don't think it had a byline with the I, I, I didn't include that for you here I, um yeah so but anyway what's what's newsworthy here is that to me is that peacock had nine million paid subscribers that and then as the variety article notes that is the first time they've ever disclosed that so how many subscribers does netflix have let's put this in some context in the united states let's limit it because netflix is a global service in the united states netflix has you have any, any guesses chris call oh uh in the united states i'd say i don't know 
20 million? 20 million. No, higher. Okay, 50 million. 50 million. Uh, that's close. But I think about 60 million. They, they, they disclose US and Canada together and they do not separate them. Uh, about 60 million. So it's, it's, it's always just a little bit lately. It's been just a little bit under what, um, what, what the cable bundle has, which is about 80 million. Uh, but 9 million. Okay. Uh, and most of these, Peacock has another 7 million monthly highly engaged bundle subscribers who are getting it free because they're, they're Comcast Xfinity customers and probably Cox customers as well. Uh, so most of the people who are using Peacock are actually paying for it, which is surprising to some, at least Rich Greenfield. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's somewhat surprising to me. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see. I think while it's, you know, Peacock is uh, is one of these platforms that's kind of late to the game here, and and they're good. they might lose money for a long time. I th- I think people underestimate sort of the point we we're making earlier about look at P fifty plus they're not moving at all they're probably not cutting the court much at all. I think uh, companies like Comcast can uh, with their profitable yes declining but still profitable cable business and telecom business can probably subsidize investments like Peacock for a long time. Now that doesn't mean that Peacock is going to necessarily succeed as a streaming platform doesn't mean that uh you know comcast might not uh find good reason to to sell nbc universal or allow nbc universal to to spin off and merge with i don't know warner media or uh discovery when when that merger is done or viacom cbs or something because they might just be too small to uh to sustain themselves alone in, in a in a world in the future where there isn't as much cable TV uh, revenue to capture. So we'll see. I, but I, I, I read this headline and I think I do see some people reacting to it like, oh my God, this is terrible for, for Peacock, but it's probably not that big of a deal. They're, they're investing more than they expected to, but they've, they've got to do something here to, to, you know, to catch some of the, the time that's bleeding away from the traditional cable bundle. Uh, 9 million is a lot more than 1.1 million which is what the WE network had in the US for whatever that's worth. That just means, okay, 9 million people, or I guess 9 million plus 7 million, which is 16 million. A lot of people have access to Peacock and could potentially be watching premium live events as well as library content. So anyway. All right. So we will move on. Uh, John Aran, once again, of the Sports Business Journal, but his interview with Nick Khan. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have a nice little image here, uh, with Nick Khan, Stephanie McMahon, Vince McMahon, and Eli Manning mm-hmm. at the March of, uh, Dime Sports l- Lunch yes. in there. Yes, this was um, in the art in the Sports Business Journal article. But, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, get right into the, uh, comments here. First from, uh, Nick Khan. If it was once a mo- mom and pop shop, Vince certainly didn't believe it was anymore, Khan said. Part of what I believe is he was looking for in bringing in someone from the outside was to make sure the community at large didn't treat it that way. We believe we're a global content company. 
Uh, and just to add from Iran, uh, during those 2018 TV rights negotiations, Khan was struck by the attitude of some WWE staffers, most of whom were not steeped in the intricacies of media. Uh, some of them, he said, acted as though they were fortunate just to have a seat at the table. They were content to negotiate with executives far down the chain of command. Uh, Khan believed that the business attitude, not to mention overall knowledge of the media marketplace, needed to change at WWE. Yeah. That, that that's interesting to intriguing to try to think about what is being referred to here. Who are the people that he's referring to here? Uh, presumably, Orand is paraphrasing things that Nick Khan have, has told him in, in this interview that he you know, he is quoted selectively. Um, is he referring to the, to the burials? I guess he's referring to the burials Wilson regime. That that's that's who was there in 2018. <sighs> Bar- Barrios- Could it be a lot of the media changes too that they did in the media department, the studios, all that? Like, I don't know. I, I mean, so the 2014 deal, best that I can understand, was negotiated by maybe Barrios and Wilson, but they also hired the talent agency UTA to make the the 2014 US deal, which they just sold the rights to NBC Universal again at a 1.7x increase, which was disappointing because Vince McMahon had promised investors on an earnings call, told Brad Saffalo of PAA Research that you can put me in a hammerlock if if we don't at least triple our TV rights. They did not triple their TV rights. They didn't even double their TV rights. They multiplied their TV rights by 1.7x. So, I don't know, Barrios struck me as somebody who doesn't, you know, I guess doesn't understand the, the, the media ecosystem as well as Nick Khan does. Uh, but he struck me, as, struck me as somebody who's definitely, I, I mean, I learned a lot just by listening to him about the media business, but, but that's, but, but negotiating effectively is probably something quite different. Um, it, do we have in here? I think we have an, another interesting point that I, I don't want to bring up. Cause I know you're about to, I think you're about to read it. So, Yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get into the next, uh, uh, next, um, part that we have here. Since Khan joined WWE, he and Vince McMahon have overseen an almost complete turnover of WWE's media division. The types of media deals WWE cuts have changed. So too have the executives who negotiate them. The WWE has undergone changes since Khan joined in August 2020 that rumors have run rampant that WWE is prepping itself for a sale. Khan said that the company has taken some inbound calls from companies looking to buy, but he stressed that WWE is not in active conversations trying to sell the company and is not actively looking to sell. Now, uh, Khan came to WWE after spending 13 years as one of the most powerful talent agencies, agents in the business. Uh, soon after relocating across the country to Connecticut, Khan went on a hiring spree. His goal was to bring in executives who shared Vince McMahon's vision about the size and influence of the company. For the company to be treated the way that Vince, Stephanie, Kevin Dunn, and myself and others believed it should be treated in the community, you needed executives who reflected that, who had range, who could get people on the phone and who could be taken seriously by their peers, he said. Yeah. So I, I did want to just mention one other thing that you actually did read in the other slide. So he's mentioning that the, the previous regime was content to have meetings with people well down in the chain of command. So that's interesting that, and maybe that's just like negotiating knowledge. This, this is such a black box to me. What actually happens between these executives, how TV deals are made and what the strategy or psychology is behind these negotiations is just alien to me. Uh, 
So it sounds like, like, was it the case that like Barrios or, or UTA or, or Wilson were willing to have meetings with rather than, I don't know, some, somebody who's like the president of, of the USA network or, or something above that even were, were willing to have a meeting with somebody lower level, which maybe allowed NBC universal to, to leverage a lower deal or something like that. I, I don't know. Um, that sounds like that's what's happening. So as far as the sales stuff, this is the first that Nikon has acknowledged that there are inbound calls. In his talk with uh, Ariel Hawani before SummerSlam, he says that, and, and, and he, he's, which is interesting, come to think of it. He did this interview with Ariel Hawani. He also did an interview with Pierre Kafka before SummerSlam. He did an interview with Colin Cowherd, his former client, before WrestleMania. And now he's done an interview with John Orand uh, before Royal Rumble. So take, taking bets on where the, the pre-WrestleMania interview will be this year. Um, but he acknowledged in the past that you know, he's willing to have, they, they're, they're willing to, to take calls, but they're, it's not, they're not seeking those conversations is what I remember him saying in the summer. And he had said to at least Colin Coward that he doesn't believe that, that Vince wants to sell it. And there's nobody who's, you know, who's better to run it. And he doesn't want to stop running it. He doesn't, you know, he, of course he does. He doesn't, he doesn't want to stop being in control of, of WWE. Uh, but this is the first that I've seen this detail that they're actually, they are receiving some inbound interest. Uh, what does that mean? Who knows? I wouldn't speculate too hard about what that means. As we sit here today, it still makes the most sense for NBC Universal to eventually own it. Maybe that's something that gets discussed. I mean, I, I imagine it will be discussed to some extent. Uh, this and next year as new US TV rights are negotiated. You know, why why pay a billion dollars for Raw or SmackDown? I mean, a billion times whatever their multiple would be. Let's say it's 2X. Why pay, you know, two or three billion dollars for one of the flagship properties when you can just buy this company and put the flagship properties where you think it's best? Um so there's that. Um for the company, so he says concepts for the company to be treated the way that Vince, Stephanie, Kevin Dunn. I've seen people point out that he did not mention Paul Levesque in this sentence. Who knows if he mentioned Paul Levesque elsewhere? But for for and for those people to believe that it should, you know, they believe that it should be WB should be treated in the community how they want it to be. You needed executives who reflected that, who had range, who could get on the phone, and who could be taken seriously by their peers. Um, okay, where where are we going next here? Uh, go ahead and read this. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But go ahead and read this, and I, I might get into that in a second. Okay. All right. Uh, and embarked on a new streaming strategy that licensed an over-the-top service WWE Network to Peacock as part of a five-year, $1 billion deal, opting to partner with a big media company that could promote its programming rather than try to compete in an increasingly crowding, I'm sorry, increasingly crowded market. In what is now a cluttered OTT subscriber marketplace, it only made sense to partner with somebody, Khan said. WWE executives see that the deal is a template for similar international streaming deals. So that's discussing, you know, getting into basically Peacock. It seems like he did it out of necessity. Yes. Only external reasons can be cited for why it was the best move to sell W Network US rights to Peacock. There could not, not possibly be anything internal uh, for, you know, internal reason for why WB had to sell its network rights to Peacock. But what was really happening is that the network subscribers had stalled, and I, disappointingly so. In a new form of media like subscription media, subscription streaming, W Network subscribers 
should have been continuing to grow. If you look at something like Netflix, it's a much older service. I believe they're still, they could, I don't know if they're continuing to grow. Uh, but in a, in a, for a service like the W Network, which had only launched in 2014, you'd think it'd be growing beyond 2019, but it, but it stopped growing by 2018. It peaked in Q2, which is WrestleMania quarter. It peaked in the US with 1.3 million subscribers. And in 2019 and 2020, it either went down or was basically flat uh, year over year. Um, and if you look at the revenue, that, that's the full year view. But if you look at the revenue, the revenue uh, in 2018. So it's not as if they, uh, you know, flattened subscribers and but got more revenue out of people either by raising the tier, which was something that was discussed, uh, but never happened. That was Barrios's plan to introduce a premium tier at higher price, uh, higher than $10. Rather than doing that, though, they sold it to, to Peacock. So they had in 2018, they had $200 million. In the following two years, they made about $185 million in, in 19 and 20. So, uh, you know, it's the idea that, uh, you know, WWE is not taken seriously in the, in the outside world. The idea that it's just such a cluttered streaming market and there's just all this competition out there, you know, that we had to do it. Um, it does make sense for a much larger company to want your content and to be able to give you more money now for it than you're able to extract now. But maybe it's the content. But that's sort of the last kayfabe of of this wrestling industry is that the man with the pencil is not is not uh, doing any anything wrong. He's not uh, standing in the way of greater revenue generation. Um, Nick Khan himself has said on one of these earnings calls, not the last one, but I think maybe the one before that, that uh, I think it was in response to a question about ratings that he thinks the content is great. So there's no willingness. At this moment, there kind of has been in the past willingness to acknowledge that there's a problem with the content. Uh, but Nick Khan thinks it's great. Uh, Vince McMahon just got to dismiss the vision of his son-in-law, Paul Levesque, a vision of wrestling that conflicted with his vision of wrestling. Uh, he's re- reestablished old comfort blankets like Bruce Pritchard into creative. Uh, how much does this matter? How much does creative matter to the business, to W's business in particular? I think creative matters quite a bit in wrestling business. In W's case, I think creative matters. It's just that in their case, it I think they're to a point here where it's bad, economically speaking, in that it's turned off it's turned off fans on an annual basis, roughly since 2016. I know some of this is obscured and complicated by COVID when we look at the data. But they've not, it's not as if Google web search and Q4 ticket sales and merchandise sales and product licensing has returned to the level that it was at in 2016 or 2017. It hasn't. Uh, But none of that can be pointed to the content, the creative. Um, And uh, I think it's it's sort of at a point where the worse it, the worse it gets, the worse it gets doesn't really change how how the consumer revenues uh, are. If it was better, I think the consumer revenues would improve, but it's sort of at a, at a hard floor where it can be the way it is, which is if you watch a premium live event, like the Royal rumble. And if you're trying to make sense of anything that you're seeing on the screen in any scope beyond 
this is what Vince likes, or this is what makes Vince laugh. You're wasting your energy. If it got even worse, which I, I mean, what does worse mean in this context is subjective, but if it, if it got, it gets worse, which I, I think it will, and it, history has taught me that it only will, it does as he gets older. Uh, it's, it's not going to crater this business beyond the point that it's at. Um, what does continue to hurt consumer behavior as it relates to WR? Other external things like no fans in attendance, um, what your TV competition is, and things like that. But uh, in a sense, it's a hard argument to make because it's just speculation that, well, if they could cultivate stars, if they could plan long-term storylines and actually execute those long-term storylines, if they could present characters who felt authentic, if Vince McMahon could evaluate talent in a way that reflects the emotions in a way that actually harnesses the emotions of his audience. Um, if, you know, he didn't book too many rematches and if he didn't think that doing DQ finishes where, you know, Seth Rollins uh, is, is in the ropes and Roman Reigns doesn't release the hold. And that gets a lot of, you know, that, that causes a disqualification that gets a lot of booze. If he didn't think things like that were good heat when they in fact are bad heat, uh, their business would, would be doing, even better than it is, but there's so much business to business revenue that WWE uh, is going to continue to grow their revenues because they happen to be in this really beneficial media environment where their USTV rights fees are probably going to continue to multiply in the next round. And they're really well positioned to ensure that's going to happen. They've got a very effective negotiator installed to make sure that that happens. Uh, the the ratings are still highly ranked enough and they're not trending anywhere but stable. Uh, and that makes me think that they're going to be popular enough, still popular enough to uh, garner really good TV rights fees, you know, um, as, as the, uh, the, 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 the rap uh, that, that starts off this program every week says uh, great success means great profit. Mediocre success still means profit. Um, yeah. And as far as WWE not being taken seriously, a like part of the reason why WWE is not taken seriously or one way, oh, let's, 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 let's frame this positively. Stop being so negative, Gull. Let's frame this positively. One opportunity in which WWE could, this would take a long time, one, one way in which WWE could help other people in the business world view them more seriously and take them more seriously is to produce content that I don't know, isn't so juvenile uh, and doesn't, uh, I don't know, involve a lot of slapstick humor and toilet humor and, I don't know, respects its audience more. I know that's a controversial idea, but I think that would help. I mean, you know, I'm, I think the point is to be said, too, is, you know, I think the narrative we always talk about is getting the fans back from the Attitude Era and this and that. But I don't think enough is talked about new fan growth. And I'll circle back to when I went to that house show um, in Buffalo in December where the majority of the audience was adults. And even the concessions guy said to me, he goes, I've never seen so many adults at a wrestling show in my life. <laughs> like just these kids that are going to end up being consumers with money when they're 18 and up. I don't think they're doing enough new fan growth at that age level either, even with the adolescent humor and all that. Like, 
And I think that <laughs> that hurts the business in the long run is a new fan growth. It's not, but if, if we're talking about that isolated thing, and I don't want to get into the minutia of, of analyzing the creative, because yeah. that's not what we're here to do. And that's not what we're good at. Yeah. But in the case of, of the humor, it's not humor that's meant to appeal to kids. It's humor that's meant to appeal to Vince. And that, that point aside, W's doing an okay job of, of create, of attracting kids. Um, you see that in things like TikTok. I, I see that in the deductions that I can make from, from ratings. I think kids are more interested in W than they are AEW is what is what I'm getting at there. And all this stuff besides, I guess, too, kids don't necessarily want kid humor. Kids want whatever it is that they want, which is usually something a little bit older than what they're supposed to be watching. But. Um, before we go through, we do have a uh, super chat from Lee Ducati that does tie into this. Is it overdramatic to characterize this whole change as some sort of Nick Khan is my new air drama? How useful is this versus it just being a good tale? Uh let me read this again. Is is it overdramatic to characterize this whole change as being some kind of Nick Nick Khan's my new air drama? How useful is it? Uh I I think there's been a, a big change in 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 the palace intrigue lately. I mean, like I think Paul Vec has fallen from power and uh I don't know what the future holds for, for Nick Khan. He's got to be there for probably five years because his employment contract uh, dictates that his, that him collecting his entire bonus is contingent on him being there for five years from August, 2020. Does he stay with WB after August 2025 or whatever it would be? Uh, I don't know. Is there, I don't know what his, what, how, where he sees himself beyond five years. If he sees himself, if he sees WWE as a, as a step to an even bigger job, or if he just he if he really loves this so much that he wants to, you know, build a legacy for himself as as a WWE executive, I don't know. I tend to think not. I tend to think that he's he, if 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 there was a bigger media company that was interested in him in a, in a in a position that he found really favorable that that maybe he moves on to someplace else after W after the five years or maybe after 10 years are up or something like that. But, um, but I think it's true also that this notion that people had up until recently that when Vince is gone, new head of creative will be Paul Levesque. That's brilliant. Gone down now. That's, pro- that's probably gone. Uh, and, and if, you know, if, if Vince was to retire today or, you know, he could no longer work after today, who would be the head of creative? I don't know. Maybe Bruce Pritchard. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, thank you, Louis Fett's super chat. And then just Tim B super chat earlier that uh, he has a rare Sunday work day, so he couldn't interact today, but he'll be listening. And thank you. Thank, thank you. For your thank you both. Chat as well. For your super um, chat. Yeah. So uh, going on to just uh, one more point here um, that, that Khan said, one of its strategies is stage events on different nights of the week, moving, for example, summer to a Saturday night from a Sunday night. WWE credited that move with helping the event post the largest gate in its history. Obviously, this is a huge opportunity to grow revenue in the live event business, Khan said, mentioning that ticket sales for this month's Royal Rumble are tracking an all-time high for the event. Yes. Uh, the WWE Royal Rumble last night in St. Louis, according, according to Michael Cole, drew 44,390. Is that, is that a credible number? Should we believe that? <laughs> Well, our good uh, friends at WrestleTix uh, say otherwise. WrestleTix reported uh, its final count of tickets distributed based on the the ticketing map: thirty nine thousand seven hundred and seventy eight. 
uh, how much money is that? What do you think for the average ticket price for Royal Rumble, Chris Gullo? Uh, $29.99. Oh, no, much much higher than that. I, I would think this uh, is – so average would be about 55 over the 55. whole – year or quarter let's say so i think it's i figured because it was a dome right it'd be cheaper bigger yeah i I see what you're totally see what you're saying there and that there's this there's a huge volume and especially a lot of these seats are far away from the ring that that maybe they get priced down but i don't know let's say it's just 55 for the sake of of argument here uh that would that would mean a 2.2 million dollar gate um there was the one Royal Rumble just before the pandemic, right? There were there were two maybe two stadium Royal Rumbles. Um, uh, yeah, I remember Arizona having one, right? Phoenix, right? And what wasn't there? Um, and I'm not talking about 1996 here. Uh, and then wasn't there also uh, San Antonio? Anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know about San Antonio. Phoenix, I remember, I believe. So, but I I would not be surprised if this is the most lucrative Royal Rumble live gate ever. Um. And it's, I imagine, even though this was out of Q4, if that's the case, I imagine they won't hesitate to tell us on Thursday with the, for the W earnings call. Uh, so, I mean, let, let, let's talk about this in that a huge opportunity, according to Conde, to grow revenue in the live events business uh, is to put more of these big events in stadiums, which, which makes sense. Uh, because the Lord knows the, the live events uh, division needs some help. Uh, what, we had a strong Q3, one of the strongest quarters for, for W live events in many years, decades, uh, in the return to touring. Months after Q3, things are looking more like they did before the pandemic, with Raw averaging in this month of January, 5,000 tickets distributed, SmackDown averaging... 67,000 tickets distributed house shows uh, in, in January. These are all North America house shows, house shows averaging uh, 39,000 in the, in the month of December, which is usually a really strong month for house shows uh, averaging 4,700. Uh, a big topic before the pandemic was what is going on with live events. And I, I we still talk about this every now and then is why are we running house shows? Uh, the WWE live events division uh, the revenue has decreased over time. I've got all the quarters here laid out since 2016. And the WrestleMania quarters, of course, are really big with over $50 million in some cases. But as time goes on, these non-WrestleMania quarters decline in revenue. Um, this Q4 is an estimate. I should have marked it as such, but I'm estimating $21 million in revenue for Q4, which let's compare that to the last Q4 pre-pandemic. 2019, $25 million. I could be wrong, of course, uh, but that would be down from the last pre-pandemic Q4, which would also be down from the 2018 Q4 with where it was $34 million. So that's revenue. In terms of operating income, which is a measure of profit, uh, WWE, even before the pandemic, I mean, obviously during the pandemic, they lost a lot of money. But before the pandemic, the live events division struggled to make a profit. Uh, we had the first in this, in this series of non-profitable quarters for the live events division in 2018 Q3. Makes sense. Probably probably the, the weakest quarter seasonally because you got Q1, which has got the, the lead up to WrestleMania. And it's got a Royal Rumble in there. That's, that's a stronger quarter. You got Q2. That's 
in all of these years that we have on the screen right now, since 2016, that's the WrestleMania quarter. Sometimes WrestleMania is in Q1, but in the last several years, it's been in Q2. And then Q4 has got the holiday tour in it, so it's strengthened by that. And Q3 doesn't really have any of those strengths in it. Uh, and that's encompassing the months of July, August, and September. This year, Q3 was incredibly strong, as we mentioned, though. Um, but from, let's say, from Q3 2019 to, uh, I, I thought there were going to be the strength, but there's not. But we did have two consecutive uh, non-profitable quarters in the live events division in 2019 Q3 and 2019 Q4, where they lost four and about $1 million even. Q1 2019 was the first quarter that encompassed some of the pandemic time, uh, mid-March. I doubt, though, if you know if the pandemic had really started to affect live events on April 1st, though, that Q1 2020 was going to be profitable because Q1 2020 reported a $3 million loss in operating income. Uh, and I'm expecting, I mean, this could be wrong. And then this is my estimate on the far right here of 2021 Q4. Again, I should have marked that as an estimate, but I'm estimating a loss of $8 million in, in the quarter for the live events division. Just nobody's confused. W is going to be profitable on the whole. It's going to break its profit record for the year, but the live events division, negative operating income is what I'm expecting based on what I anticipate from attendance based on tickets distributed from, from Russell ticks. So Vince McMahon had said before the pandemic that, you know, they know what's, they understand what's happening with live events and they're going to, there's going to be a complete reimagining of live events. He didn't specify what that entailed, but this is, this is something that he said on one occasion uh, before the pandemic that they would reimagine live events. And that would, that would help this division because people were asking questions and understandably because they were not making money. So uh, I've been told by a couple people uh, at WB that WB is considering introducing its own production company uh, where they would basically outsource their live event production capabilities, presumably to like concerts or, or, you know, you can use your imagination to what that would mean. Basically renting out their live event capabilities and their video capabilities to other live events. Maybe that's, I mean, I don't know, obviously, but I mean, this is something that's being talked about, but maybe that's something that would get counted into the live events division that might help these, these red bars below zero become green bars. So, is that something that we hear about on Thursday? I don't know. It might be too early for that. Maybe that's something that we hear about in another three months. We'll see. Uh, I could see Vince liking this idea because it allows other people in the business world to take them seriously for a reason that doesn't have to do with their wrestling. Because, you know, don't, don't you hate wrestling? I, uh, uh, wrestling's that's what his dad did. And it, it says, look, we have all these great entertainment capabilities and we, we do these really great things. And, it, and others who are not wrestling people need us because we're so great. So I can see Vince liking that idea. Uh, so I can see this being something that happens. We'll see, though. Um, real quick before we move on, uh, 
MJ did have a uh, super chat for us. Thank you, MJ. Uh, in 2021, it appears management was more concerned with growing integrated brand partnerships opposed to cultivating more fans and consumers. More consumers could equal more partnership opportunities. So really just kind of a comment from him. But thank you for the super chat. Thank you, MJ. MJ and I will be doing a Q4, WQ4 earnings preview. We're planning to do that on Monday. So look for that. That'll be in the podcast feed as well as probably on YouTube. Um, yeah, I mean, p- people bring up, and I, 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 I'm probably the cause of some of it because I've, I've made these charts that show, you know, look, look at how W's revenues have converted from consumer-driven revenues to business-to-business-driven revenues over time, which is true. But look at AEW. It's not as if AEW is 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 different, you know, tr- you know, importantly different in that sort of percentage breakdown. Uh, the majority of AEW's revenues are probably business to business because they make a lot of money from their TV deal relative to their company overall. Uh, but WWE has to rely on business to business partnerships because the creative is such that it doesn't inspire greater consumer demand. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, we will move on here. Uh, to just a preliminary rating. For we don't have it. We don't have a, oh, we can, we can, yeah. Okay. We can talk about this. So there's, there's a problem at Nielsen at the end of the week, this week, this is, this is the old, this is last week's prelim rating okay. that we have on the screen. Um, there's no Thursday ratings yet. So we don't know what impact or new Japan did. Uh, Nielsen is having trouble with its hardware or something. Uh, so we also didn't get fast affiliates for Friday, which would include SmackDown, which also means there were no fast nationals. And you know what? Rampage did like a 0.24 in the demo last week. I mean, it was on the higher end of the range of what they've been doing lately. So just sort of by the law of averages, it's a good chance that Rampage is down on Friday. And with no fast nationals, that means that nobody could report that the Rampage could report two days in advance that the Rampage rating might be down. So a disappointment there. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah, so yeah, on to our next story. How are WWE and AEW performing on TikTok and Twitter? I, I, th- I thought it was uh intriguing that in July, as I've been doing the you know, why, why, why some of this data comes to the surface here is because I have been working on the 2021 WrestleNomics full industry report. Chris, we, we should like when we when we uh publish that, which hopefully will be this week. <laughs> Uh, we should have you like record a ring announcer introduction or something like that. There's a, there's a marketing, really pump it up. There's a marketing <laughs> idea. Um, so I've been doing some social media research and did you know that WWE's main flagship account, uh, now since July, uh, WWE's main account on TikTok has more followers than it does on Twitter. Of course, TikTok is a strongly growing social media platform. Uh, if we look at AEW for some context, I mean, AEW still has this large gap where it's AEW's Twitter followers on its main account are well behind its TikTok followers on its main account, even though, you know, we do see some, some growth here in the, sometime in the summer growth really starts to, to grow for AEW on TikTok. And that's a little bit delayed. We also see that uh, for, tw- for, for AEW's Twitter followers as well. I'm, I'm guessing some of this is driven by, the debut of CM Punk and Brian Danielson, that hot period that they had in August and September. Um, but I think it's maybe meaningful 
to think about, especially in our world, in our wrestling media world, where so much discussion and news is shared and and happens on on Twitter and wrestling. There's there's a phrase called wrestling Twitter that refers to something that most people under prime maybe listening understand. A lot of people listening, um, but I'm sure there's people listening who are not active on Twitter as well. Um, but even among a population of people who seem disproportionately engaged on Twitter relative to the population generally, which is wrestling fans, even looking at something like WWE, now we're at the point where TikTok has surpassed uh, Twitter. Um, I, I don't know how many monthly active accounts TikTok has, but I'm, last I knew, Twitter has, is it like 300 million or something like that? Maybe it's maybe it's gradually grown, um, but I imagine TikTok has a lot more. Um, so it, it gives you an idea of how strong TikTok has grown, but it maybe it also gives us an idea of, I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound like, like a certain someone and start talking about the vocal minority here, but how how strongly amplified things seem on Twitter when maybe they don't really reflect the, the views of the wider population. Um, but maybe that kind of fan is still more engaged on Twitter. This also gives me the idea that, Hey, look, maybe, maybe WWE does over indexing kids relative to say what AEW does. Uh, even though AEW's TV audience is, substantially younger you know we see dynamite and rampage doing the late 40s for a median age viewer whereas raw and smackdown are in the mid 50s maybe sometimes the late 50s nxt is in you know at about 60 lately but tv viewing is skewed so old that we don't get a great idea of like who's engaging children more and i would imagine that that's wwe um and something like this where we see tiktok which has the reputation of being a platform that kids are very active on. Twitter does not have a reputation of being a platform that kids are very active on. Although I do have my suspicions about who's reacting to my ratings tweets. Um, but, but yeah, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's just suggestive of the composition of the fan bases. Uh, as I've been watching, AEW was pretty inactive on TikTok in April and May where they posted no videos since June or July, though they have picked back up where now they're, they're posting a similar number of videos per month as WWE is. So, um, they're, they're becoming more active here. I mean, and I would think too, you know, I mean, not for nothing they just signed Dan and There's a lot of TikTok potential with that. Let, let, so. let him give, give him access to the, to the TikTok account. Yeah. 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 Just let him have fun with it. Sure. Okay. All right. Uh, so yeah, and uh, we will uh, move on. And here's a question: um, Is AEW too edgy? Is there trouble with advertisers? Is AEW too edgy? Let's entertain that. I think. Is it edgy in, in the first place? Is it edgy? I, I think I think it's edgier than what we have seen on television wrestling in the last 15, 20 years with the probably the language and they're willing to do things outside the box like the Nick Gage match. Yes. Um I don't, it's, it's it's something that's been raised to me uh, and and it was, it was from someone who had you know I think had been at the um some of the upfronts that W has done in New York that you know I 
when when it's been brought up that AEW and WWE's ratings are comparable in the demo of 1849, for example, I think one of the WWE executive responses has been that, well, they can do this stuff that's edgy and they'll capture a, a certain audience, a uh, pretty avid audience quickly, but there's a ceiling to that. And if they really want to attract viewers more generally, like like we do, I think they're going to have to realize that they can't do this edgy, edgy kind of content. Um, I, I guess I don't really accept the premise that in some ways, yes. I mean, obviously, AEW is willing to do blood and gigging that W is not willing to do. Gore. But 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 seriously, they they are willing to do uh, blood in a way that uh, W is is not. Uh, now W might be willing to let Brock Lesnar break uh, Randy Orton's head open with his elbow, but at least they're not using a razor blade to do that. Um, so, but there's also I, I mean I mean if you think of the the, um, the Toronto Star quote that W gave for that article about how you know they were criticizing uh, the example of the of the new year's eve match uh the women's tag match and how bloody and gory that was and we think that that's not uh something that you know the general public or business partners or advertisers uh, are interested in um but i think you could levy some similar uh accusations against WWE to say well i don't know are our advertisers and business partners and the general public uh are they are they comfortable with W's relationship with Saudi Arabia and, and the, uh, the the $50 million per event that W is getting? Maybe. Um, but that's, that was certainly an issue when, when Jamal Khashoggi was killed by the Saudi government. Um, and you got W in, in current times doing gimmicks like what they're doing with, uh, you know, portraying Akira Dazawa as a ninja. And um, I think this was in the last year when, when Jeff Hardy was still working for WWE, where, um, you know, I, I, I've put it on the screen here. I had a put it in black and white though because i don't i don't want to get demonetized here on youtube um where jeff hardy threw a cup full of a certain substance into the face of sheamus um do you remember what that substance was uh chris gullo and you you may describe it using only euphemisms <laughs> that's that is my, that is your my challenge for you <laughs> that good stuff i don't know <laughs> good stuff there was okay uh, there was a i think a drug test being had and uh there were some samples being collected donations if you will being being collected for the drug test oh okay so this was alcohol and not or not alcohol this was supposed to be a okay this was a urine sample a, a drug sample that was being collected and then jeff hardy took the cup full of of drug sample right. and threw it into the face of um of of sheamus now, now, fortunately, this was on a streaming platform where the audience. Wait, no, it wasn't on a streaming platform. The audience was limited. This was on. This is on cable, though. At least you know the FCC doesn't. Wait, no, it wasn't on cable. This was on Fox. Um, I think it was edited out of the the, the West Coast feed. That's what I had heard, but um, I don't know. Um, yeah, you know, we have the story about uh, that that you know Domino's did did give the quote to front office sports about how you know they were uh, not aware of what the content would be like when Nick Gage was carving open. Uh, Chris Jericho's head with a pizza cutter, but um, I've asked about whether or not uh, AEW has been having trouble with advertisers because I've heard that that's being reported. Um, if that's happening, people at AEW are not aware of trouble with advertisers. So I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it's, it sounds like something that's a, a W narrative, but we'll see. In, in my opinion, in 2021, 2022, edgy product is good for television ratings. It's good for advertisers. Uh, 
it all, you can't cross a certain line, of course, but I mean, what is one of the biggest things that people absolutely love right now? And it's true crime and true crime is blood, guts, and gore. Like the mm-hmm. and true crime is a big money maker. And I, I think the viewing habits of adults kind of steer towards that a little bit edgy. We're not talking 1990s edgy, but still an edgy, you know, form of entertainment. I would be curious to know, does, does UFC have issues? Because, I mean, there's like guaranteed real blood in just about every UFC telecast. But who knows? I mean, the, the content may be an issue. I mean, I'm, at, I'm sure it, it does limit them to some extent. Uh, maybe it limits WWE to some extent. Is there a difference there? I don't know. Uh, an interesting project to do that I, I should I should assign to uh, Chris Gullo is uh, watch W content and AEW content and just write down all the advertisers and we should get a, a running data list of uh, of all the advertisers that are appearing on, on US programming for wrestling. All right. Uh, so moving on to the next story here, uh, of course, our good friends at post wrestling, uh, you know, part, we are happy to have this strategic partnership with them, but the event aired on uh, both fight TV and traditional pay-per-view, which we're talking about the world and GCW uh, fight TV chief, op- chief operating officer, Mike Weber confirmed to post wrestling that the show was the most purchased GCW event in fights history. The GCW show did very well. This is the best show for them, not for fights. We did 700,000 buys for the Tyson Jones fight from a year ago. Weber is referencing the Mike Tyson exhibition fight with Roy Jones Jr. That took place in November 2020, and it was deemed a major success at the time. The card took place from Staples Center and featured Jake Paul on the card as well. Uh, fight did not specify the number of buys Sunday's event had generated, and traditional pay-per-view buys are unknown right now, but the pay-per-view was available on Fight TV for $24.99 U.S. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've tried to ask Flight at times uh, about uh, any information they'd be willing to share about uh, the uh, their their pay per view sales, but they they're a private company, and uh, but but Post Wrestling did get Mike Weber to at least say that it was the most purchased GCW event in history, which is what you would suspect. I mean, it would be very disappointing if it was not. Um, I, I heard that this was not fully distributed on traditional TV pay-per-view. Uh, I heard that some people had access to it on their system. Other people in other regions and other systems did not have access to it. Uh, I, I know, I'm sure everyone would love to know the number of buys. I have no idea. And I don't know that we'll ever really know. There's probably a very small number of people who know and who don't have, who are not incentivized to share that information. All right. And this other stuff I we we don't need to, these are just extra slides that I threw in here. I guess we can do the YouTube. Um, I've been, I'm, I'm continuing to uh, develop these YouTube tables. So what we've got here on the screen right now on YouTube is um, what we're looking now only at show highlights. So there's a lot of videos, for instance, W posts full matches all the time. They just posted the entire 2015 Royal Rumble match. Uh, which has got like 3 million views already after a couple days. Uh, but what we've got, what I've got here is just show highlights because I'm toying with the idea that maybe YouTube um, videos of show highlights are more informative about what segments are driving interest than quarter hours are because quarter hours are complicated in more ways than I think YouTube views are. This is not to say that YouTube draws revenue that's comparable in any way to what traditional TV does, but that maybe it indicates something about interest 
in a more effective way than than quarter hours do. Uh, quarter hours are complicated by the fact that there's commercials in quarter hours are complicated by the fact that there's multiple segments occurring in quarter hours because quarter hours are arbitrary segments of time cut up into 15 minutes. Uh, but these are highlights of very specific segments of a show. Uh, the, the top video of the last seven days after 24 hours only to give everybody a level playing field uh, with about 1.3 million views after just 24 hours is Seth freaking Rollins. And then a Roman Reigns segment from SmackDown. Uh, after that, it's Brock Lesnar and Bobby Lashley stepping onto a scale. They did a scale angle. I don't know. Uh, and then the uh, the mixed tag uh, angle, Edge and Beth Phoenix, Ms. Maurice from Raw involving security guards. Number four, the return of Sasha Banks. And number five, the first AEW video on the list, Danhausen debuts in AEW. We don't need to go through the rest, but that's, that's just a, a, a bite. This might be something I end up reporting regularly as I work out issues with it. All right. And then do we want to predict the ratings? I saw you had them in the slides here. No, I've got tons of extra clutter slides in here. Go ready for WrestleMania's Jeopardy. Okay. I, uh, no, I, wait, all right. No. I guess so. no, we're at, we're at the 90 minute mark. Um, <laughs> predict the ratings is, uh, have you been into the post wrestling discord yet? Chris Gull? You're in I there, right? I, I, what are you I, waiting I, for? I, I, I for you I told me before that you've told me before that you're active on on Discord. Well, I have a Discord and I've used it. <laughs> I, I think I'm the gonna, Lord. I think the Lord of the Discord, Phil Turtock, is listening right now, and you're going to disappoint him by not participating in the post wrestling Discord. Where I will participate. Where you can you can pr- predict the ratings. That's what we're promoting here. You can go into the WrestleNomics channel in the post wrestling Discord and type exclamation point. PR, PR stands for predict ratings and type in, we're just going to do this for dynamite for starters. Maybe eventually we'll explore other programs, but we're, you can go into the WrestleNomics channel, type exclamation point PR and type in what your prediction is for the 18 to 49 demo rating for dynamite this week. We did it already this past week. So we have, I was, I'm, I'm ranked number three. There are two, two people who correctly predicted the AW demo rating of what was it? 0.41, I think. So you do that. Uh, I guess we're wrapping up here. Hit the thumbs up, like the video. This really helps people discover it on YouTube and, and helps us helps us reach and create new fans. We don't have fans. We have we have audience members. We have WrestleNomics Universe members. Anyway, share the video if if you wish. Subscribe on YouTube if you haven't already. There's WrestleNomics T-shirts and WrestleNomics mugs at store.postwrestling.com. Not this Thursday, but every other Thursday, right here on the WrestleNomics YouTube channel, I do live TV ratings talk at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Won't be doing it this week because it will conflict with the WWE earnings report and conference call. I may or may not reschedule the live TV ratings talk to some other time. We'll see, though. Um, yeah. And thanks, as always, to Post Wrestling, our distribution partners, for helping us spread the word of WrestleNomics. And you can subscribe to the WrestleNomics Patreon if you've not subscribed already. If you're not subscribing, you must, you're, you're missing out on some of the uh, the deepest, not some of, the deepest analysis of professional wrestling TV ratings that, that there is anywhere uh, for the U.S. telecasts, for Raw, SmackDown, NXT, Dynamite, Rampage, Impact, New Japan, the only place to really find New Japan as, as it returns to access. I should have it hopefully on Monday. 
with the, the Nielsen delay hopefully being relieved by then. You also get access to the massive Russellomics viewership spreadsheet. You get access to the audio version of Live TV Ratings Talk. And every now and then I put other stuff on there as well. I put something on there. Uh, the, uh, the first five minutes of AW Dynamite and of Raw SmackDown NXT, that was, that was a bonus this, uh, uh, this past week. So patreon.com slash Russellomics, just $5 a month. And as for you, Chris Gull. All right. Yeah. Uh, so as for me, um, actually tomorrow, Monday will be the new episode of Rediscovering Indies where we're going to talk Dusty Rhodes Turnbuckle Championship Wrestling. Uh, Dusty Rhodes, uh, trying to create a kind of territorial promotion in 2001 after the fall of WCW and, uh, very interesting stuff in there. A John Collins tie in, but I think my favorite thing that we, uh, covered that you'll hear is that after Dustin Rhodes re-signed with WWE in 2002, Dusty booked a fake gold dust. Really? <laughs> yeah. So you can find, uh, rediscovering Indies. Like I said, it'll be out tomorrow. Uh, check us out on social media, RTI pod on Twitter, rediscovering Indies on Instagram and Facebook. Yes. So, uh, your co-host, Jonathan Ash, he worked yes. the GCW pay-per-view. Yeah. Kevin Dunn of the Indies. Yeah. He was, he was, he was doing some production for that. He actually produced the MMA show I worked last night. Uh, really? So, wow. You know, but then probably I won't see him again for another month. <laughs> As wow. He's got his own crazy schedule. I got my schedule, but I'll be uh, ringing out it again this Saturday. I'm going to be in Erie, Pennsylvania for Revenge Pro Wrestling. So I saw, I saw that they're coming back. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and any other upcoming wrestling events or other live events that you, that you want to promote uh, for February. That is all I have for February and March gets a, is busy. And, and then uh, soon I'll be making my announcement for where I'm going to be mania weekend, at least one place, hopefully some more. So mm. Daniel Garcia and Kevin black would wrestle each other on bull last night. Yes. I had someone send me a picture. That was exciting. Um, the Blackwood picture uh, having him in the, I think it was a Cloverleaf was pretty cool. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, yeah. Find that. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening and tuning in. Thanks. Thank you to everybody for your super chats. I'll be back tomorrow. I think with MJ from NJ, we're going to dive deep into WWE finances and the stock. See you then. Bye. <laughs>